Welcome to the audio channel of the Reverend Dr. C.H.E. Sadoffel. His purpose is to preach Christ, teach the Bible, and make disciples. Now let us open our Bibles and our hearts as we listen to him proclaim the Word of God. Church, I would invite the congregation to please stand and turn to Luke chapter 2, verse 41, as we will first pray and then read the Word of God. Luke chapter 2, verse 41. Let us pray. And now we humble ourselves before God Almighty, whose grace has gifted us and whose love has saved us. Patiently now we wait for thee. You word as a lamp to our paths and a light to our feet. May the Holy Spirit strengthen his servant to deliver a word of truth, so that many to Jesus will come and meet. Amen. Luke chapter 2, verses 41 to 52. The NASB says... Now his parents, now Jesus' parents, went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he became twelve, he went up there according to the custom of the feast. And as they were returning, after spending the full number of days, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. But his parents were unaware of it, but supposed him to be in the caravan and went a day's journey, and they began looking for him among their relatives and acquaintances. When they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem looking for him. Then, after three days, they found him in the temple, sitting in the midst of the teachers, both listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. When they saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us this way? Behold, your father and I have been anxiously looking for you. And Jesus said to them, Why is it you were looking for me? Did you not know that I had to be in my father's house? But they did not understand the statement which he made to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth, and he continued in subjection to them. And his mother treasured all these things in her heart. And Jesus kept increasing in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. Please be seated. Church, the title of this morning's sermon is, Do You Know the Real Jesus Part 2? Last week in Part 1, we emphasized that we're in the Gospel of Luke. And Luke's Gospel is important because he tells us the specific reason why he's writing his Gospel, why he's writing his book of the Bible. And Luke tells us he's writing it so that we may know the exact truth, the real historical facts about the real Jesus so that we may have a relationship with him. 
We establish that here in Luke number 2, we have an exclusive narrative. Because nowhere else in the universe exists a story of what Jesus said and what Jesus did as a boy when he was 12 years old. And we establish that Joseph and Mary were in Jerusalem celebrating the Passover, which was like the Super Bowl of all Jewish festivals. Joseph and Mary lost Jesus, and then they go searching for him. Now, verse 43, Luke chapter 2, verse 43 says this. When he became 12, our narrative takes place when Jesus Christ was 12 years old. Why is that important? Because in Jewish culture, when a boy is 12, that is the last year before he becomes a man. At 13, a Jewish boy has a bar mitzvah. Those are two Hebrew words. Bar meaning son, mitzvah means commandment. So when a boy is 12, he's a boy. He's a child. He's someone who's young. But when he becomes 13, and he has his bar mitzvah, and he becomes a son of the commandments, now he's a man. Now he's no longer a religious spectator. Now he's an active participant in all the religious festivals, and he's expected to know everything that Judaism is about. And if Jesus was 12, this means next year when he turned 13, he would have now been a man, meaning this Twelfth year of the Passover is when he would have expected to be the most obedient, when he would have expected to be close to his father Joseph the most in training in preparation for year 13 when he's a man. So Joseph and Mary, verses 41 to 45, tell us, stay in Jerusalem the full eight days for the Passover celebration. They pack up in their caravan to leave, going back home to Nazareth, and they suppose that Jesus is with them, but he's not. And when they find out that Jesus is missing, they turn around and head back to the place where they last found him in Jerusalem. And then verse 46 says this. Then after three days they found him, they found Jesus in the temple, sitting in the midst of teachers, both listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. When they saw him, they were astonished. When teachers heard Jesus, they were amazed. When Joseph and Mary saw Jesus, they were in awe. When you taste God's word, when you taste the sweetness of the word of God, as it says in Psalm 19.10, it is a taste so sweet it is better than the sweetest drippings from a honeycomb. When Jesus touches you, 
as he did in Matthew 8.14 to Peter's mother-in-law. When he touches you, you become well, you become healed, and now you have a newfound conviction to serve him. And when you smell Jesus... When you smell the groomsmen of the church, as it says in Song of Solomon 1, 1 to 4, it is a pleasing fragrance that delights the nostrils. When you get to know the real Jesus, it has real effects in real life, and it is an overwhelming sensory experience so that your hearts will pant and cry out, I will rejoice in him and be glad. Here's the first point. Do you know the real Jesus? Because once you get to know him, he will exceed all of your expectations and leave you in a state of awe. Jesus exceeds your expectations and leaves you in a state of awe because when you have a real relationship with him, he gives you a new heart, he gives you a new mind, he gives you new desires, and now he gives you a new object of worship himself. And when you truly and earnestly delight after and find favor and find joy in serving Jesus, not only do we have faith in him, but in the process of serving him, in the process of getting to know him, now we have new delights and desires and new spiritual senses where we delight in his word and it is sweet and delighting to the soul. These new spiritual senses are attuned, and it is more pleasing, it is better than when grain and when new wine abound. When all you have are natural relationships, and you get hungry and drink new wine or new grain, once that food passes through your system, guess what happens? Now you're hungry again and have to consume more, and the source of that grain and wine is finite. But when you have a real relationship with Jesus... He is an eternal, never-running-out, unyielding, overflowing source of grain and new wine that is so delightful, you can't stop but having joy and delight in your heart all the time. Because the real Jesus will have real effects in your real life as a function of new desires and new delights. Beloved, when you have a real relationship with the real Jesus, you are going to have so much joy in your heart, you are supposed to make God look good. You are supposed to be a reflector, a mirror of the love and light of Jesus Christ. So when other people see your joy, when other people see your delight, when other people see you doing common everyday things, people are supposed to say, I want that. There's something different. There's something special. There's something unique about them, and it makes them want to serve Jesus. Do you know the real Jesus? Because if you do, he exceeds all expectations. What does our text say? It says Jesus at 12 was sitting in the midst of the temple. He was 12, was sitting in the midst of the temple. Why is that important? 
Because in Jewish culture, the teachers were the ones that sat. The disciples would be the ones, or the students would be the ones, that sat at the feet of the teachers. Time out. Jesus is 12, and he's in the teacher's position. He's in the one who's sitting, instructing other people. And here's the thing. This was the time of the Passover, meaning what? This means the best of the best of the best Jewish teachers were in Jerusalem. Jesus' students weren't D students and C students. Jesus was teaching the A++++ Jewish teachers of his day. So Luke is telling us that at 12 years old, Jesus was a prodigy, amazing, the best Jewish minds of his day. And isn't it ironic that here in Luke, this is the last time Luke ever refers to other people as teacher. After this event in Luke chapter 2, the only person that's ever given the title of teacher is the only one true teacher, Jesus Christ. So do you know the real Jesus? Because if you do, he exceeds all expectations and leaves you in a state of awe. Church, do we realize what God did for us on the cross? Do we realize how much the gospel of Jesus Christ exceeds our expectations? On the cross, God treated Jesus as if he lived my life. On the cross, God treated Jesus as if he lived your life. And all the sin, everything that's a violation of God's holiness, which he abhors, he treated Jesus as if Jesus did all of that. And Jesus died for the sake of his children so we wouldn't have to. But not only does God take away all the bad, do you know what God now does because of the cross? Now God treats you as if you lived Jesus' life. He therefore not only takes away all the bad, he imputes his perfect obedience and righteousness to those who profess faith in him. And God did that for all of his children before they were even born. Because salvation is of the Lord, meaning it is always God accomplished, never human achieved. So do you know the real Jesus? Because if you do, he exceeds all expectations. The text says that Joseph and Mary turned around and went back to Jerusalem. Roughly speaking, in the time of Jesus... 30,000 people lived in Jerusalem. During the time of the Passover, that number swelled to 500,000. Half a million people. So Joseph and Mary now spent three days searching for a 12-year-old boy amidst half a million people. Just imagine I dropped you off in the middle of Midtown Manhattan. And I said, your child is somewhere in between 10th Street and 70th Street. Good luck. Go find them. That's more 
than a needle in a haystack. So it's no wonder the text says that Mary and Joseph were anxiously looking for the boy Jesus. Verse 48 says, And his mother, Mary, said to Jesus, Son, why have you treated us this way? Behold, your father and I have been anxiously looking for you. The NASB translates a Greek word as son. The Greek word for son is technon. Technon means the offspring of a human parent, in other words, child. So the other way of translating this question is, child, boy, why have you treated us this way? Mary wants to know, Jesus, you are 12 years old. This is the Passover when you were supposed to cause the least number of problems. This is the Passover the year before your bar mitzvah, when you were supposed to be as close to Joseph as you've ever been. Why have you treated us this way? Mary had lots of logistical questions. She had lots of natural questions. Here are some other questions. Where did Jesus stay for three days? What did Jesus eat? Did he do any miracles? Did he stay in Jerusalem? Did he take a walk? What did Jesus do in his free time? Was he in the temple for 24 hours? Beloved, we may have lots of natural, logistical questions about life. We may have lots of inquiries about how the material world works. But this is what Jesus is showing us here in this narrative. That God transcends our natural questions. God is bigger than our natural inquiries. Because he always isn't going to answer our questions if... Those answers won't draw us closer to Him. Sometimes God will purposely redirect and interrupt us and not give us the answer we're looking for. So we'll stop searching for an answer and start searching for Jesus. Because in order to have a real relationship with the real Jesus Christ, what we don't need are answers. What we need is Jesus. So how does Jesus respond to Mary's question? He says, verse 49, And he said to them, Now stop right here. This verse, Luke chapter 2, verse 49, is a big deal. Why? These are the first words of Jesus in history. This is Jesus Christ's first sermon. These are our Savior and Messiah's first words to all of humanity. This is critically important. Write a note in your Bible and put a star next to it and say, This is a big deal. And what does Jesus say? Mary asks Jesus one question. How does he respond? He says, Why is it that you were looking for me? Did you not know that I had to be in my father's house? Literally in Greek, he says, Did you not know that I had to be in the things of my father or in my father's affairs? Or as Charles Spurgeon said, Did you not know that I had to be about my father's 
business. Mary asks Jesus one question. He responds by now asking her two questions in return. In other words, Jesus interrupted Mary's line of questioning. Just like Jesus interrupted Mary's and Joseph's travel plans back to Nazareth, now he interrupts her line of questioning. Because he didn't answer her, he was trying to lead and direct Mary that something bigger was going on. Having an answer to Christ's whereabouts, why he stayed behind, that wasn't the focus of what he was going to reveal. He was looking above and over Joseph's head. And he said, did you not know I had to be in my father's house? And here's the thing with fathers and sons, their relational terms... You can't be a father without a son, and you can't be a son without a father. Jesus was where? In the temple? Whose house was that? God the Father's house. So when Jesus looks over the head of Mary and Joseph and says, Did you not know I had to be in my father's house? What he was saying is, Did you not know that I am the son of God. So point number two, do you know the real Jesus? Because he is the son of God. Now here's something we have to understand, because when we say son in 21st century West, and when the Bible says son, it means different things. So in general in the Bible, when you're a son of something, that refers to your you're obedient to it. So if you're a son of blank, that tends to mean you're obedient to blank. But being a son in the Bible also refers to describing something or someone that has a characteristic feature of something. For example, Isaiah 5.1, he refers to the land as son of fatness, meaning the land is fertile. In Ezekiel 2.1, he calls Ezekiel the son of man, not meaning Ezekiel is the biological descendant of all human beings, meaning Ezekiel has an essential characteristic with what? Humanity. So son of man means a human being. Jesus calls James and John sons of thunder. Why? Because they had bold, striking personalities. In Luke 132, the angel tells the Virgin Mary, the son that you bear will be the son of the Most High. In Luke 3, the father speaks from heaven and looks at Jesus and says, this is my beloved son in whom I well pleased. And in Romans 1-4, the apostle Paul refers to Jesus Christ as the son of God. We have to understand this idea because when we think of a son, we think of someone separate and distinct from their father. We think of someone younger. We think of someone subordinate. We think of someone who has less resources, who's not as wise. But when the Bible uses the word son, 
It can mean having a characteristic feature of something. It can mean being obedient to something. And it can also mean that you are now going to inherit your father's stuff. And guess what? When Jesus says, I am the Son of God, all three applications of the word Son apply to him. And in Jesus saying a characteristic feature of me as the Son of God is God, that is Jesus saying, I am God in the flesh. This was a 12-year-old boy saying, I am the Son of God. This tells us at 12 years old, Jesus Christ had a clear idea of who he was and what he was called to do. And it's not a mistake that Luke includes this when Jesus was 12, which would now tell us where Christ is going to go for the rest of his public ministry. You may read some Bible scholars and they'll tell you funny doctrines. They'll tell you funny things like, Jesus didn't really think he was God. Or Jesus had an identity crisis later on in life and he was unsure if he was the Messiah. And I'm sure all those people who are really, really smart have, have read lots and lots of books. But the one book I'm sure they've never read is the Bible. Because right here, the Word of God makes it crystal clear. Jesus was declaring in his first words to humanity, he said, I am in my Father's house, therefore I am the Son of God. And in Jesus making that claim that he is God, this is the first time in recorded history when anyone ever made the claim that God is their personal Father. Israel had made the claim that God was the father of the world or God was the father of the entire nation over and over and over again in the Old Testament. But for someone to say that God is my personal father was a claim so mind-bending. It was a claim so radical. No one really understood what he meant. And that's exactly what the text says. That Mary and Joseph heard this and they didn't understand what Jesus was talking about. And in Jesus looking over the head of his natural parents and saying, did you not know I had to be in my father's house? That is him telling us he has a calling and he has a relationship with the Father that transcends natural relationships. He can look over his natural parents and say, I have an identity and a calling that supersedes this natural material biological union. So here's a subpoint. Because I've been asking over and over again, do you know the real Jesus? But here now is a probing question. Do you know the real you? Because ident your identity 
determines your purpose, and your purpose determines your clarity. The first sermon that Jesus Christ has ever made was a statement of his identity, who he was. That now defined his purpose, and that now made clear exactly everything he would say and do for the rest of his public ministry. So I'll ask you again, do you know the real you? Because identity determines purpose, determines clarity. Jesus saying, did you not know I had to be in my father's house? Did not come from a posture of waywardness or independence. He was God, but was yet obedient to God. Sent by God to do God's will. How does this apply to you and I? That's very simple. When we now have faith in Jesus Christ and we are in Him, we now have a spiritual relationship that supersedes and transcends all of our natural relationships. So yes, we may be a father, we may be a husband, we may be a brother or a sister, but our true identity that determines our purpose, that gives us clarity in life, is that we are now a child of God. We are now adopted sons and adopted daughters of the Most High. And now we live with an identity that says, I am a child by faith through Jesus Christ of God the Father. Ephesians 1.4 says, He predestined us as sons through Jesus Christ. Galatians 4.5-7 says, He put the Spirit of the Son in us, and then we shall call upon His name and say, Abba, Father. With a clear, God-centered, Christ-centered identity, that gives us now purpose and clarity as to all the steps we're going to take in our life. Church, if you know who you are in Christ, if you know who God has called you to be, do you know what you will never say? You'll never say, I'm bored. You'll never be able to say, I don't know what to do. Never. Because if you know who you are, a child of God, you know exactly what you're going to do. You're going to be about your father's business. You have purpose. You have clarity. And here's the thing. When you're about your father's business, people aren't going to get you. The world is about the devil's business. Children of God are about God's business. So of course you're going to be strange. Of course you're going to have a worldview and a lifestyle that sets you apart and is labeled as weird. You won't fit in and will oftentimes be rejected. But so what? If God the Father chose you, if God the Father is your Father, and you have the approval of the King of Heaven, of what does it matter if the world rejects you? Because identity determines purpose, determines clarity. And when you know the real Jesus Christ, you know your true identity, which supersedes every other relationship in life, is that you are an adoptive son or daughter of the Most High God.
and you will always be about your father's business. And that ties into my next point. Point number three. Do you know the real Jesus? Because Jesus Christ must always be about his father's business. And if we are in Christ and we now are about our father's business, do you know what that means? That means we can now never go about life minding our own business. Because if you mind your own business, guess what? You're not about your father's business. You cannot serve God and self. And Jesus says, did you not know that I had to be? The ESV translates that as, did you not know that I must be in my father's house? Jesus had a conviction. He had a compulsion. He had a fire inside of him that had to come out because of a clear identity which determined purpose and clarity. Jesus says in John 4.4, that I must go to Samaria. He says in Luke 4.43, I must preach the kingdom of God. He tells Zacchaeus, I must stay in your house. In Luke 9.22, I must suffer. And in John 3.14, he must be lifted up. This must, this compulsion, means an absolute necessity to serve God. And if we now pursue Jesus Christ and imitate Him, that means we now get our identity marching orders from a Christ-centered worldview, which comes from a Christ-centered identity. What does that mean in plain English? That in everything that you do, you must, you have to be about your father's business. This means you are about your father's business in your worship, in your talents, in your lifestyle, in your money, in your thought life, in your language, in your actions and your reactions. And reactions are more important than actions. Why? Because your actions are planned. Your reactions are reflexive based upon what's already inside of you. You must be about your father's business in your time, in your relationships. You have to be about your father's business when you use your smartphone. I work in an office where every single day it breaks my heart when I see these young girls and I see these young guys spending hours at a time being entertained on their smartphones. Literally, their life is wasting before their eyes, consuming entertainment which has no lasting value. That is not your father's business. And when you are a child of God, called to serve and to point others to Christ, anything that you think, anything that you do, anything that compels you, must, has to be about your father's business. God must have all of us. And he will purposely destroy, he will purposely eradicate all fake Christ in our life until he has all of us.
Because as John Piper always says, the only way we will be maximally satisfied in life is when God is maximally glorified. And we spend, when we, even in the process of serving and honoring and and delighting in God, that gives us new sensory experiences and new joy that will supersede whatever else you may think gives you satisfaction and pleasure now. Even habitual sin cannot compete with the joy that Jesus Christ puts in your heart. Because as, as I said at the top, when you delight in sin and believe the lie that sin can give you lasting pleasure, once you commit the sin, now the drive comes back, now the impulse comes back, now the yearning comes back to do it again, and after time, like a drug, you have to do more and more sin to get the same effect. That is natural grain and natural wine. But the joy that comes from having a relationship with Christ is better than when grain and new wine abound. We must be about our Father's business. And where is the place of the Father's business? They found Jesus about his Father's business in the temple, which is a place of Worship. The Father's business is always conducted in the, in the place of worship where other like-minded followers of God are magnifying and glorifying Him in spirit and in truth. Jesus was not found in the, the palace, the source of political power. He was not found in the Colosseum where entertainment takes place. He was not found in the field or the quarry where natural labors and industry takes place. He was found in the temple, the place of worship. Because God is always about God's business. He's not about man's business. What modern Christianity has gotten wrong is God is not concerned with how you vote. Politics is man's business. If you eradicated poverty all over the world, but everyone was a Satanist, what is the point? God's business is to bring sinners to repentance. You could bring the entire world out of poverty. But if everyone is no longer poor, but no one doesn't, but no one knows Jesus Christ, then what, beloved, would be the point? That is man's business. Social problems, political problems, economic problems, but God's business always takes place in the house of worship. Jesus was about his father's business. He wasn't even about his parents' business. He wasn't even about Joseph and Mary's business because Jesus was sent by God to do God's business. Now I keep saying over and over again, the father's business. What does that mean exactly? And the answer is simple. The Apostle Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 5, verses 18 to 19. The text says, Now all these things are from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ, and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and he has committed to us the word of reconciliation.
In other words, bringing God's children into a saving relationship with the Father through Jesus Christ. Jesus eliminated all dividing walls and barriers by the eradication of sin and imputing his righteousness to us so we may be reconciled to God the Father. And as I mentioned before, if you know the real you, now that you know what Christ's purpose was to reconcile sinners to the Father, now that animates what you do in whatever it is you do in life. You, beloved, are not going to redeem anyone, but you can point other people to Jesus Christ, the one who does redeem. It doesn't matter if you're a doctor, if you're a lawyer, if you're a business person, if you're in education. You may have that title that gives you a natural label for what you do, but the overall impetus, the overall theme when you go into work every day is to be about God's business and to reflect the love and light of Christ in whatever it is that you do. You're not just a so-and-so. You are a so-and-so who has an identity and therefore purpose and therefore clarity. So you serve others as if Christ would serve them. Verse 50 says, But they, Joseph and Mary, did not understand the statement which Jesus had made to them. Verse 51, And Mary treasured these things in her heart. Fourth point, do you know the real Jesus? Because you will never fully know him uh, here and now in this life. When you find anything in God's Word that is difficult to understand or cannot process, store it in your heart, hold on to it, and preserve it for future study. Mary realized Jesus said something that was way over her head. It transcended her understanding. But she realized there was something special. So she didn't reject it. She didn't run away from it. She simply stored it in her heart as something that was over her head and preserved it. So that if I were to use my sanctified imagination later on in life, when she looked back at Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, she could now have clarity and make sense of what happened in and through Jesus' life. The point, beloved, is this. We can never know God fully here and now in this life. Because God is infinite, we are finite. If we ever could put God in a box and figure out everything, and figure out A leads to B leads to C, guess what? He wouldn't be God. The fact that we can't search God's will, the fact that we can't know all of God fully, points to the simple fact that He is holy. He is other. He transcends everything natural and finite about us. We are called in the Bible not to have childish faith, but child-like faith. And this is what this means. It means using your full intellect, using your full cognition. Realize that God is God and He has an infinite mind that supersedes even when you try your hardest to figure it out. But you simply rely and trust on Him that He is God and He is trustworthy. 
My son right now is four months old, Josiah. And I never talk to my sons like babies. I always talk to them like adults. I just in my mind thought somehow that would help them in the long run. So sometimes I'll come home from work and I'll just look at Josiah and I'll talk to him like an adult. I'll tell him about my day. I'll tell him about the news. I'll read a Bible verse and he'll like, he'll just stop. And he'll look at me with his big brown eyes and just, he'll look so confused, but he'll just sit there and just eat up all the words that I'm telling him. But then sometimes I'll get down real low to Josiah's level and I'll get real, real close to him. And I'll say, Google Gaga and make a silly face. Then, because I'm speaking baby language, Josiah lights up. Now his cheeks puff up, he shows me his gums with no teeth, he shakes and he gets all excited because he now understands what daddy is telling him. Consider, beloved, when God reveals his Bible to us, that's God saying, Google Gaga. That is God stepping down to our level and revealing things to us so we can understand. Now consider this. If sometimes God's Google Gaga is hard to understand, that plants in your mind how infinitely unsearchable the mind of God really is. So praise be to God that he has given us the Bible, his word, in something that we can treasure and something that we can study and examine. So we all ought to follow Mary's advice, knowing there's going to be stuff we'll never quite get. But we trust in the loving Father who revealed it to us. Now, the fourth point was, do you know the real Jesus? Because you'll never really know him in this life. But what about the next? Do you know what the best definition of eternal life is? Because technically speaking, you can't measure eternal life with time. Because eternity is timeless. In John 17:3, in the high priestly prayer, Jesus prays to God the Father, and he defines eternal life for us. He says, this is Jesus speaking, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. The best definition of eternal life is having a full, unfiltered, vast comprehension of who God is and then delighting in that knowledge for eternity because knowing who God really is fully is the definition of full, rich, eternal, abundant life. So we will not know anything and everything here and now that is reserved, that is a treasure waiting for us in paradise. Verse 51 says, And Jesus went down with them and came to Nazareth, and he continued in subjection to them. And his mother treasured all these things in her heart. When a son is in his father's house, where is he? He is home. 
Jesus in the temple was therefore where? He was home. So when Jesus stayed behind and Joseph and Mary left, he wasn't running away. He was staying in daddy's house. He was staying where he belonged. So when Joseph and Mary now come to get him and he leaves the temple, he is now leaving home. He is now leaving where he belongs to go to Nazareth where he would simply stay or have a room for the next 18 years. And when he finally returned to Jerusalem at the end of his life for his crucifixion, that is when he made his triumphal return back home. And verse 52 says, And Jesus kept increasing in wisdom and stature and in favor with God in men. In other words, Jesus grew mentally, physically, spiritually, and socially. And this verse covers the next 18 years to when Jesus begins his public ministry in Luke chapter 3. Now, I'll close by saying this. Luke chapter 2 gives us a snapshot, a glimpse into what happened to Jesus before his public ministry began. Luke chapter 24 is all the way at the end of Luke that gives us a snapshot of what happened when Jesus' ministry was almost over. So let's turn to Luke chapter 24, verses 1 to 6. So Luke 24, 1 to 6 says, But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they came to the tomb, bringing the spices which they had prepared. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb, but when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men suddenly stood near them in dazzling clothing. And as the women were terrified and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living one among the dead? He is not here, but he has risen. Here's the contrast. In Luke chapter 2, Mary and Joseph thought they lost Jesus. They sought him and they found him in his father's house. In Luke 24, these women thought they lost Jesus. They sought after him, but they did not find him. Why was that? Because they were searching for a living God amongst a tomb that was meant to contain dead men. When we seek after, when we pursue, when we seek Jesus Christ in this life, there are some spots he will never be. He will never be amongst ritualism. He will never be amongst ceremonialism. He'll never be amongst moralism, legalism, philosophy, or any other natural thought scheme. He'll never ever be amongst personal experience. He will always be in his father's house about his father's business. 
And when Joseph and Mary went searching after boy Jesus, they thought they lost a mere boy. What they found was the Son of God. In Luke chapter 24, these women thought they lost a man, but the risen lion of the tribe of Judah ended up finding them. So here's the question I have for the listening audience today. Do you know the real Jesus Christ? Do you have a saving, personal relationship with him? Have you lost Jesus? Have you supposed he was with you, but he's not? Is he with you right now? Just like these women in Luke chapter 24. If you seek him now, you will find him, for he is not dead. He is risen. And the search you execute is not in vain. And I know this for a fact because Jesus himself said he came into this world to seek and to save that which was lost. For everyone that he seeks after, he finds, and everyone that he finds, he saves. Beloved, the apex of God, the Father's business, is Jesus Christ. For the Father is the one who sent him into this world to save sinners. The only real solution to your real despair, to your real disappointment, to your real longing, to your real defeats, to your real guilt, and your real sense of being lost, to the real eternal whole in your heart, is the real Savior who died on a real cross and really suffered to wipe away all your real sin, to take away all of your real shame, and once and forevermore destroy the wall separating you and your Heavenly Father. There is only one person who did all that to reconcile us, to reconcile me, to reconcile you to the Father through himself. And that is the real Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the sweetness, the pleasing aroma, and the light we derive from meditating on and listening to your word today. I ask you, O Lord, just to use your word which has been delivered to ignite the fires of those who already know you, so they will give off, O Lord, both light and heat, and the flames of passion, O Lord, will be renewed, and they will delight and find new joy, better than when grain and new wine abound, in having a real relationship with you. And I pray, Holy Spirit, that you also use these words to illuminate and to open the eyes of all those who hear it. So if there are any, O Lord, who do not know you, they will have their eyes open to your power, to your love, to your light, and call upon the name of the only Messiah, the only God in the flesh, the only one who mediates between humankind and God, the real Jesus Christ. We thank you, O Lord, for your grace. We thank you, O Lord, for your mercy. And we praise you knowing that you have already accomplished what we could never do. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 
We do hope that you have been enriched and equipped by the preaching of Dr. Sadoffel. For more valuable resources, please visit WCSK.org. Until next time, peace be with you, and to God be the glory forever.